On this week's episode, a man witnesses the terrifying truth of alien reproduction. A driver encounters a sinister tall man on a highway one cold night. And Russian miners unearth the coffin of a woman from a civilization long past this earth. This week on Strange Pathways. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Strange Pathways. I am your host, Scott Mort. I am having a great week. I hope you're having a great week, too. I just got off of the stage production of Spaceballs. Had an absolute blast. And just to those of you who did show up, thank you so much. We had a fairly decent-sized crowd. was really happy about that. But I want to throw some thank yous out. Bear with me. It's going to take a little while to get through these thank yous. I want to thank Elena, Chris, Dawn, Jade, Johnny. I want to thank Jonathan, Kara, Lacey, Michael, Natasha, Natasha, <laughs> Richard, Rick, Riley, Robert, and Tom for just making this one of the best experiences of my life. Thank you so, so much. We had a blast. Everything went off without a hitch. There, whenever you do a live performance like this in front of an audience, there's always stumbles and what have you. The important thing is that you recover quickly from those stumbles. And that is exactly what happened. Absolutely, absolutely a joy to work with these people. And that's, that's really what made the process fun was the people. Thank you so much for indulging me. Now onto this week's tales. Our first tale is going to take us all the way back to February 29th, 1996, Cusca El Salvador. At around 6.30 a.m., the police are called out to El Pongo Lake. They've gotten reports that somebody is walking around, just sort of wondering, acting unusual. The police are dispatched, and they find a 17-year-old boy. They ask him, what are you doing out here? Who are you? But the answers this boy gives don't make any sense. He's, he's speaking gibberish. Now, of course, the police are worried that maybe drugs are involved. Maybe this is a mental health concern. So they take the boy into custody and take him back to the station. Now, later, the boy comes back to his senses somewhat. And he tells the police... A very, very bizarre story. The night before he was found, he'd been walking towards his home. There had been an electrical blackout. There was, there was no lights whatsoever. All of a the sudden, there was a bright flash of blue light 
from behind him. Now, of course, this boy is, you know, out late. He, he thinks that maybe it's the police. He slowly turns around. And then his memory ends. The next thing he can remember is that he is in a completely white space. A room so brightly white, he can't see any walls. He can't see any furniture. It is just white. There does seem to be some sort of border, but nothing tangible. But he does come to realize that he's not standing. He's lying down. He's paralyzed. And he's in some sort of bed. Numerous cables were connected to his chest. And on his right arm, there was something that put him in the mind of, a, of an IV. It wasn't quite an IV, but just something similar to it. He then sees them, the entities. These, and I use the term aliens, these aliens are around four feet tall with extremely large heads, huge eyes. But in the forehead area, the witness could see what appeared to be another protuberance. Something that looked somewhat like an eye. Now, these entities also had beards, thin beards, around the mouth and chin. Not anything full or luxurious, just sparse beards. He notices there are other humans in the room, but he can't really tell if they're also prisoners like he is, or if they're free. Several of these humanoids, though, are operating on a woman. And they cut her in half. They, they take the upper half of this woman and insert it on the back of a hump-like area on one of the female aliens. This female alien had been being prepared on the other table. Now these surgeons, butchers really, wore white tunics and they had a strange symbol on the right side of their chest. After after this horrifying incident, the witness is taken to the shores of Lake Ilopango and they tell him, our race is in a state of war and we cannot reproduce in our original normal manner. Immediately he has the sensation of falling towards the lake.
he's very confused. He can't, he can't really remember the order of things. These, these entities at one point, he can't really figure out at what point they told him this. But they, they tell this witness that on the bottom of this lake, they had their reproductive eggs stored. They take this witness to see a doctor. They're worried that he's perhaps had a mental break of some sort. Completely understandable. The doctor, during his examination, does find several strange scars on the witness's body. It really, with these entities, it really seems to come down to reproduction. They are consistently taking reproductive matter. They are consistently creating hybrids. But this war, we are in a war and cannot reproduce by the normal method. We've, we've been under the assumption for a long time that these creatures somehow lost the ability to reproduce and they're using our genetic material to do so. But if they are in a war, maybe it's not so much that they can't reproduce, but maybe our genetic material is simply too perfect to make new soldiers for them. A cheap, easy, vicious, strong hybrid of us and them. Four-foot-tall creatures, hyper-intelligent, but not really built for strength, where we... Obviously, the stronger of the two species, physically, but with not quite the intelligence. And let's face it, us being humans, we are... <laughs> rage and violence is our standard. We grew up on a violent world. Why wouldn't they try to combine for war the best of both an intelligent soldier who is strong who is large who is vicious but not so smart that he's smarter than the ones giving the orders Our next tale will take us back to the winter of 2020, just outside of Hillsboro, Missouri. The witness goes by the name MP. He was driving north on Highway 21. It was around 10 after 10 at night. He was just past Jefferson College in Missouri. MP passed 
the northbound off-ramp from Hayden Road and got onto northbound Highway 21. MP even remembers the mile marker, 169.6. He's not sure of the day of the week, but like I was for many years, he was a night shift worker. All of the nights, whenever you worked night shift, they just seemed to run together. So I understand that. He does remember that it was a very cold night. And it was a very lonely night. The road was deserted. MP's car was the only car in the north or southbound lane. He had taken this same road to work for eight years. He knew it. He knew this road like the back of his hand. MP's car had one of those little temperatures, little thermometers on the inside. And it's telling him it's only 20 degrees Fahrenheit out. But with the wind, it feels colder. It was bitterly cold. Right before he gets to that mile marker, 169.6, he notices somebody standing on the right shoulder of the road under a streetlight. This man is, is facing MP. He... He's... Somewhat taken aback, MP slows down as he comes up on him, just in case this guy doesn't see him. MP has no intention of stopping, though. None. This man is completely still, not walking, not moving. Anybody who's driven roads late at night, every once in a while, you'll come across somebody walking and they're, they're never really just standing there. People don't want to be out on a road late at night. They're trying to get from one place to another. As MP approaches the man, he realizes he's poorly dressed He's only wearing this dark-collared faded hoodie and dark-collared faded pants. Now MP doesn't remember if they were jeans, if they were sweatpants. He just knows that they had no holes or rips. But just the overall look of this man is shabby. His head is covered with the hoodie. And... This man is keeping his head pointed down enough so that his face is invisible. Something's off about this, more than visually. And then it hits MP. It's 20 degrees outside. I'm not seeing 
any steam. I'm not seeing breathing. It's really cold out. It's 20 degrees. I should be able to see the vapor of him breathing. There's nothing there. This man stands there completely motionless, hands hanging at his sides. He's not moving to try to stay warm. He's not walking, not swinging his arms, not flexing his fingers. He is a statue. Let's talk about those fingers. No gloves. 20 degrees out with no gloves and just standing there. His fingers, his fingers had to be aching from the cold. This man doesn't even have his hands in his hoodies. Underneath of his armpits, in his pants pockets. The arms on this man are way too long for the sleeves. Maybe about three, three and a half inches of bare forearm are exposed. Estimating his height, MP thinks that he would have to have stood six foot nine inches tall. MP slowly drives past him. He watches him. The adrenaline kicks in. It's like everything's moving in slow motion. The man never turned his head, never moved any part of his body. MP passes him. Kind of looks up every once in a while in his rearview mirror. He still stood there completely motionless. MP keeps glancing up at the rearview mirror. And he's always there. I'll be honest, I don't know what would be worse, just seeing him standing there in the rearview mirror or just having him all of a sudden not be there and you not knowing where he is. It, it's got to be terrifying to some extent. MP, MP is chilled to the bone. He calls it an ominous, dark, foreboding feeling. Was what MP saw, was it a ghost, an entity of some sort? Was it a demon, a specter? Are these just a bunch of words that we use for the same thing? Or maybe MP just saw a man, an awkwardly dressed, very tall man out on a cold night.
Our last tale is going to take us back to early September 1969. The village of, and I am probably going to butcher this pronunciation, Rzhavchik in the Tosolsky district, Gemerovo region, Russia. A miner named Karnikov was blasting a coal mine. He's, he's, in a, he's in the center of a 20-meter coal seam. Underground, around 70 meters. And he discovers this six to seven-foot marble casket. It is, it's beautiful. The workmanship is obviously mechanical. It's, it's amazingly precise. And it's just a gorgeous marble casket. The, the commander at the head of the site, in Alexander Alexandrovich Mazalgin, who passed away in 1980, of a stomach ulcer, he, he absolutely insisted all work be immediately stopped. The men in the mine lift the casket to the surface and they, they find the edge of it. It's been puttied shut. The putty, of course, it's no longer putty. It's petrified along the edges. So they chip away at it. In the heat of the sun, this putty begins to melt. It turns into a clear liquid and flows away. One of the miners just takes a little bit of it on his fingertip, touches it to his tongue. A week later, he has a mental breakdown, refuses to go into his house. He freezes outside, right at the door. The lid of this casket was an absolute perfect fit. The inner edge of the casket is bordered by a doubled edge, 15 centimeters thick for a stronger connection. The lid, now pried off, exposes that this coffin is filled, absolutely filled, with a pink-blue crystal-clear liquid. Underneath this undulating surface of fluid was a tall, slender, beautiful woman. She looked to be in her 30s, European features, and her eyes are wide open, large, and blue. Her hair flows through the liquid, dark blonde curls with a reddish tint, all the way to the waist. Her hands are delicate, resting along her body, her 
Nails are short, neatly trimmed. She was dressed in a pale white lace dress. The dress ended just below her knees. The short sleeves were embroidered with colorful flowers. And the dress had a transparency to it. There was no underwear to be seen. It became apparent to these miners that this woman was not dead, but asleep. At her head was a black rectangular metal box rounded at one end about 25 by 10 centimeters in size. The public came and looked into this coffin for five hours, about 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. The entire village came out to see it. The authorities got involved firefighters, the military, police came in large numbers. By two o'clock, a red brick colored helicopter flew over the area. It lands and delivers some very serious looking men in civilian clothes. These men tell everyone this place is contagious. Everyone closest to the coffin, move away. And then they cordon off the place and they find everyone who touched the coffin. Even those who were close, they tell them that they need urgent medical attention. These authorities that were there, they wanted to drag the coffin to the helicopter, but it weighed way too much. They decide to, to lessen the weight. They're going to pump the liquid from the coffin. But as the liquid goes lower and lower and lower, the corpse inside begins to turn black right in front of them. They, they quickly pour the liquid again and the blackness quickly dissipates and then disappears altogether. A few minutes later, that blush, that look of aliveness is once again on the face of the woman. The coffin is closed. It's carried to the helicopter. The remains of the putty, that liquid... It's scraped together along with the earth it seeped into in plastic bags. And the men tell the witnesses to leave. The helicopter flies up and heads off in the direction of Novosibirsk. Five days passes. A professor arrives in town from Novosibirsk and gives a lecture. He walks into the village pub, gathers as many of the residents as he can, and tells them, 
we've got the laboratory results. In, in the very near future, he said, Soviet scientists will publish these results. The woman they found was buried in the Carboniferous period, or the Paleozoic era. Millions of years before dinosaurs, long before the formation of coal on the planet. At first, the scientists thought this was an alien. But they did a genetic test of the woman's body, and she is 100% human. The woman belonged to a civilization whose technology exceeds ours. The nature of the fabric from which her dress was made could not even be analyzed. It was produced by a technique that we, mankind, have not invented yet. The pink-blue liquid. We can't, we can't test it. Only some of its components. The professor says nothing of the metal box. Only we're looking at it. The professor leaves. A couple of days later, a little tiny blurb appears in the regional newspaper. An archaeological relic has been discovered. Three lines in a newspaper is all it got. Three lines for all of that. In a few days, the area is cordoned off by the military. The place where the coffin was found, dug up and covered with earth. People in this village wanted to know the truth. They wrote letters to the Central, Central Committee. But a year later, a lot of them died. All of the men who had dug up the coffin, six men, died one after another in car accidents within a year. You can imagine the, the surviving witnesses kept their mouths shut. In 1973, on the shores of the islands of Lake Berchukul, just six kilometers from where the coffin was found, large-scale excavations were carried out all summer until late autumn under the strictest secrecy. Soldiers, police, they all refused to give the details. But that same brick-collared helicopter kept flying to the excavation site and taking something away. Perhaps hundreds of graves dug up. Was there a civilization ahead of us and before us? I really believe so. 
whenever you look at all the evidence, all of the out-of-place artifacts, I have to believe something was here before us. You look at the Sphinx and how there's water erosion on the Sphinx. Water erosion that had to have happened long before the Egyptians were there. That Sphinx, that Sphinx was there much, much longer than the Egyptians were. Take a look at it next time. Bring up a picture of the Sphinx right now and look at how small the head is compared to the rest of the body. Almost as if that Sphinx was carved out of an existing head on it. Now, if I'd have to take a guess, if I'd have to put money down, I would say the existing head was probably something akin to a lion's head. And then the pharaohs, whoever the ruling pharaoh was at the time, carved out of that. You may be able to hide that. But what you cannot hide is the water erosion on the Sphinx. That water erosion proving that it is much, much older than the Egyptian civilization. Thank you for joining us once again on Strange Pathways. Head over to our TikTok and Instagram, Strange Pathways Podcast. Our Twitter is Pathways Strange. Head over to our Facebook. We're not going to have a lot of photos this week because, quite simply, the, the tales that we have have no photos accompanying them. There's really a not, not a lot we can say about them. But... If you have a tale that you would like to tell us, you can email us at strangepathwaysmail at gmail.com. Anna, I am so, so sorry. I haven't gotten back to you. It's been a very busy week. I did see your email. I know you're listening. Hello. And I will get back to you very, very soon. That is a promise. It's been such a hectic week, as you can imagine. Um, please. Head over to YouTube, like, comment, subscribe, tell a friend, tell a family member. You know you've got somebody out there who is going to just absolutely love this show. And I am proud of it. I feel that we put out a good product. And I hope you enjoy it. I hope your friends and family enjoy it. Thank you once again for joining us here on Strange Pathways. Take care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>